0: this is a crossroads international church podcast bringing lives together please visit our website at xrds.nl for more information about us our service times and for other relevant resources good morning and blessings to you who are here and good morning and blessings to you who are watching online ah that's good it's good to worship the lord as you might know, we're in the middle of our Mythbusters series. And if you've ever seen the show Myth- Mythbusters on Discovery Channel, you know it's these two guys with their team. And they're busting common myths or stories that people tell each other. And they're trying to discover, is there any truth value in these myths? They, they explore things like, can you, uh, can you water ski behind a cruise ship? Uh, This is one I've seen. Uh, What happens when you drop a frozen turkey on your foot uh, or on a small dog? Stuff like that. They bust myths. And in this series, that's what we've been trying to do. Manuel kicked us off in the first week, spoke about a very common myth. Uh, If you ever talk to people who are not familiar with church or or, uh, didn't grow up in church, uh, you know, the Bible that we have today, is that the same book as they had back then? Uh, This is an interesting myth, comes up all the time, talks that I have with people. And then in the last two weeks, our pastor Paul has tried to demystify for us the wonderful and glorious book of Revelation and gave us a couple keys to understand this book. Next week, our elder chair, Sean, will try to bust this myth for us, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. If that ruffles your feathers now, please join us next week. It's going to be fun. This week, we're going to look at this myth, and it's this, that the Holy Spirit is a force. The Holy Spirit is a force. So what we're really asking ourselves with this myth is, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit like the force in the Star Wars franchise, where powerful Jedis and and dark lords try to conjure up an invisible force in order to overcome their enemies? Is the Holy Spirit, like the old King James translation says, uh, translates the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost, is the Holy Spirit like a ghost that we can hunt, like on a YouTube video, go to a haunted house and try to capture something supernatural? Is the Holy Spirit perhaps a little bit like a power to be traded, like Simon the Sorcerer tried to do in Acts, try to purchase the power of the Spirit, do a little bit of God trafficking. How about that? In a few months in April, we'll have baptisms again. Why is it that we baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? And why do we talk about the Holy Spirit so much in church? We're going to have an upcoming series called The Fruits of the Spirit. Why do we look at the gifts of the Spirit? If you look at the Hebrew and the Greek, there's basically two words for... In Greek, it's pneuma, and they basically mean the same thing. It can mean either breath, not like bad breath, but like the breath of life, right? In Genesis chapter 2, God breathed into Adam... He breathed into man his spirit, his breath, and man became a living soul. There's different images that uh, the Bible gives us for the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about the Spirit as uh, something that we, we don't know where it's coming from, and it's like the wind. We don't know where it's coming from, and we don't know where it's going, but we can, I can feel its effect on my life. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, Jesus says. There are other images the Bible gives us. We have the picture of a dove, a gentle dove descending on Christ as he's baptized. We have the picture of fire, uh, the tongues of fire in the book of Acts. We have the picture of water. It's kind of like earth, wind and fire, but then a little different. There's different images for the Holy Spirit. So why is it good to look at this? Why do we look at this myth, the Holy Spirit is a force? Well, for one, there's no systematic treatise in the Bible about who or what the Holy Spirit is. So we need to study the Scriptures. We need to look at the Revelation. How has God communicated Himself to us? And how do we understand His Spirit and the work of His Spirit? And let me tell you, understanding who the Spirit is will help us Relate to the Spirit. Simon the sorcerer did not know who the Spirit was. And so he could not relate to the Spirit in an appropriate way. You know, these days, everything, everywhere you go, everything is an experience, right? When you go shopping at the store, it's supposed to be an experience, right? Uh, If you buy a piece of furniture, the store is supposed to be an experience for you. A lot of stuff is approached in that way, but uh, there can be something good in that. People are wired for experience, and the Holy Spirit is what? Is the way we experience God. And for some people, that's the way they connect with God primarily and firstly when they come to faith. I am standing in front of you here today. I experienced something of the Spirit of God in my life, and it changed me and touched me and drew me in to the Word and everything else. So the title of today's message and kind of the takeaway for us is is really simply this: it's welcome, Holy Spirit. Welcome, Holy Spirit. And we're going to look a little bit at the person of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in our midst in our churches. Amen. First, want to look at the Holy Spirit as a person. In John chapter 15, verse 26. John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. It's important as Christians that we do not forget our past. We just came out of Advent and the Christmas story, and it's kind of a new tradition in the Tenhova household to read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, the greedy, grumpy businessman who doesn't hand out food vouchers and doesn't say thank you to anybody, right? And he is first visited by the ghost of Christmas past who shows him the innocence of his youth, the gifts that he freely received from his relatives and friends of his family. And it is beginning to work on his heart, on his road to reform and redemption. Forgetting a problem, forgetting our past is a big problem. It's a problem that plagues movements and countries. Sometimes we need to forget our past, right? Sometimes God redeems us from a past and we need to leave that in the ocean of forgetfulness. Our sins have been forgiven and we're standing on new ground. We're a new creation. But there are other times where we need to remember what happened before. And forgetting our past is, is something that plagues many movements and countries. This is why, if you're new to the, to the country, if you're new to the Netherlands, you'll see this this year. On the 5th of May, we, we celebrate our, uh, our liberation, our freedom. And we, we do that to remember the horrors of war so that it might never happen again. We do that to remember. This week it was uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the United States. We remember the oppression of one people to another people. We remember that people have equal rights no matter what their color is and that we need to fight for that and continue to do that so that we don't forget our past, right? We live in a society obsessed with novelties. You know, we check New Del 10 times a day. There's news coming out all the time. There's technological developments. Everything is new. If If you don't read up, you're lost pretty much. There's no new news that you can give to anybody. If I walk up to someone in the office and just read something on the news, hey, did you hear about this news message? Yeah, I've heard about it. Well, it just came out. Yeah, I've heard about it. Everybody's updated all the time. But in this age of novelties, we need to become aware, I think. And we need to be careful that we don't become short-sighted as a church. We need to remember the historical rootedness of our faith. And if church history has taught us anything, guys, it is this, that we need to watch out for something that we could call Trinity Drift. We need to watch out for drifting from this ancient holy truth of the Godhead described as Trinity. So we're not going to visit the ghost of Christmas past today. But for a moment, I want to get into our time machine and visit the saints of Trinity past. How about that? I'm going to get into our time machine for a moment, if you'll permit me. And we're going to travel back to a hill just outside of Rome in 312 A.D. It's October it's rainy, and Emperor Constantine or wannabe Emperor Constantine is trying to capture power of Rome and the Roman Empire. He's trying to defeat his rival, Maxentius. And in trying to do so, he is uh, trying to appeal to a- any god and every god that he can imagine. And as the legend, as the story goes, he sees a vision of a cross beaming in the sky, and he hears a voice that says, in this sign, conquer. And he takes that as a divine sign, and he paints crosses on the shields of his soldiers. And would you know, they plunder Rome, and Constantine is installed as emperor. The first time Christianity was militarized. But it also produced a lot of good. In in 313 AD, the Edict of Milan was issued, and Christianity was no longer illegal. What this meant, guys, was for two and a half centuries, the church has been persecuted. The church's Christianity has been an illegal religion. Now, for the first time in history, Christian leaders are able to breathe. They're able to hold church services publicly. They're able to write letters to one another freely without being without risking imprisonment. For the first time, they can travel freely through the empire and talk about theological questions and issues that have plagued the church from the inception. But when you're fearing for your life, you don't have time to to answer all of these, to look at all of these. And so this is why, after in this time also, the church started looking and affirming some truths and some things that have been uh, questions for a long time in the church. In 318... We're traveling in our time machine to Alexandria in Egypt. There was a priest called Arius, and he was a charismatic figure and started to have a following. But he departed a little bit from the teaching of the church, and he began to say, No, 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 no. This Christ that you worship is God with us. And mind you, the Holy Spirit is in the slipstream of all of this. This Christ whom you worship as God, was, he wasn't always God. He actually was created by God the Father, who is the only real God that we should worship as God. And he began to attract a following, and people were wondering, what what is he saying? There's a bishop of Alexandria called Alexander. What a name, Alexander of Alexandria. It's perfect, easy to remember. Maybe that's why he picked it. And he started picking up on this, and he said, This is is very dangerous. He's starting to get a following. And not only is this doctrine of how the Godhead relates to one another here at stake, but Bishop Alexander argued our very salvation, the very thing that Christ died for, is at stake here. Because if Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the slipstream is not God, how then can we truly and fully and definitively know God. If Jesus isn't God, how is it that the Apostle John says in chapter 1 of his gospel, the Word was with God and the Word was God? How is it then in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 to 4 that we are to become partakers of the divine nature adopted into the family of God? If Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the slipstream are not fully God from God, not fully light from light. He says this goes against everything that the biblical witness stands for, that Jesus taught us, that the apostles taught us, and that the early church has affirmed. It started to get tense in the church. And Constantine, the emperor that thought to bring peace and stability in his new empire with this new religion, started to get worried. This was not good for politics, all these people quarreling about this state religion. So he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to call a meeting. I'm going to call a council. All expenses paid. I'll pay for your travel. I, I'll pay for the buffet. I'll make sure all expenses are paid, and I'm going to preside over this meeting, and I'm going to make sure that as we leave, we have a drafted document that everybody has signed that says what we believe. First church council. 325 A.D., the Council of Nicaea. You might have heard of it. Arius' supporters, you know, Arius who deny that Jesus is God, began to plead their case. They started reading. All the bishops are, have convened. Constantine is presiding. And they start reading the arguments, and they're starting to say, Jesus was not always there. He was a creative being. And as he starts reading, the bishops put their hands over their ears. They start shouting, stop. Stop this nonsense. It was the first time that everybody was able to hear the argument clearly. And they said, this goes against everything that we know. So Arius's view was rejected, but then the need became clear for good language to describe how the Godhead really relates to each other. And this led, for the first time, the affirmation of the doctrine what we now call the doctrine of the trinity the trinity and in this creed specifically in 325 ad was established that the father and the son are one being holy spirit in the slipstream they are eternally coexistent equal in authority and power god from god and light from light By affirming this doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the early church fathers began to touch on a mystery that is hard to understand but they have given us beautiful language for it. In the years to follow uh, controversies continued to be there. Constantine wanted to please everybody. He wanted to keep peace in the empire and so sometimes wanted to compromise on truth and a famous church theologian, you should know his name, Athanasius. He defended this doctrine that is at the root of our faith, became at the center of our faith. He defended it against Emperor Julius, who wanted to go back to paganism, against Constantine, who wanted to just keep the peace and give everybody a little slice of the pie. And in 381, in Constantinople, the Cappadocian fathers... The two Gregories and Basil of Alexandria, they finalized the doctrine of the Trinity in a creed. Even though it was established that the Father and the Son and the Spirit were one being, a lot of questions were still arising. Okay, How do they relate? Are they the same person? Are they different? And so they drafted this, guys. I want to read it to you. And this is what the church has historically held up as a mystery before us and affirmed. It says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, from who, prece- who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son, He is worshiped and glorified. The Holy Spirit is not just a force or a power that we acquire, that we can conjure at will. What the creeds established so importantly was that not only is the Holy Spirit God, but the Holy Spirit is personal. And so we are to relate to the Spirit in a personal way. Amen? By affirming the Trinity, the Church Fathers embraced a deep mystery that is at the center of our faith. And of course, this supports the biblical witness. Look, at, look with me here. The personal qualities of the Spirit. We are born again through the Spirit. We enter the family of God through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as the comforter, the advocate, the teacher, the helper, the spirit of truth, the witness, the one who convicts. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can rejoice in the Spirit. We receive gifts. And we grow beautiful fruit, fruits through the Spirit. So we should be careful, I think, that we do not depersonalize the Spirit. It's not just a force, but it is God who is present among us. And so this doctrine of the Trinity, sometimes it's hard to relate to. There are different images that or analogies people have tried to seek, um, You know, the whole idea, of course, Jesus was a man. Jesus was fully God and was fully man. uh, And he was a man in sex and gender. But we do not necessarily put the uh, images we have of gender and the qualities that we have in human categories on the whole Godhead. Even though we relate to God as Father, um, we don't necessarily take that to mean that God was before Christ as a human father would be. There are different Connotations to that. And so I want to give you a suggestion on how you can think about the Trinity. Not necessarily a biblical category, it might be helpful to you. But what the Bible does a lot throughout the scriptures is something called an anthropomorphism. So we add a human quality, we use a human quality to describe something that God does. Anthropomorphism. For instance, Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. What does he mean? There's some, some divine hand pressed upon his head? No, it's a way of using human imagery of a hand to describe something that God is doing. And some theologians have pointed out uh, and this might be a way to relate to the holy family, the eternally coexistent Trinity, that we have a father, we have a son. What's missing? A mother, right? Now, this is not a category that the Bible necessarily gives us, but it might be helpful for you to relate to the Godhead, to picture it in your head. And if not, just forget about it. But some theologians have pointed out how the Holy Spirit has a lot of motherly qualities, ministers to us within a lot of motherly ways. For instance, uh, we are born through the Spirit. We are born again through the Spirit of God. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he says, "How I've and the Spirit came upon him. How I've desired, as a hen that gathers her chicks under her wings, to gather you." The Holy Spirit is the Comforter, our Advocate, our Teacher, our Helper. Just like Eve was Adam's helper in the garden, the Holy Spirit is described as the Helper. It's the same idea. Again, we don't have to necessarily put human categories on God that aren't specifically given to us in the Scripture. But maybe this is helpful to you, picturing the Holy Trinity as the Holy Family. So the Holy Spirit is not a force, even though He has a force and He has power. He's a person of the Godhead. Amen? So I want to quickly touch on the work of the Spirit in our midst. Paul the Apostle has a beautiful vision for how the Holy Spirit is to be present in our meetings. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 39 to 40 he says, so my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. And this is the part where I want to focus on. But all things should be done decently and in order. In 1 Corinthians 14, you know, chapter 12, 13, and 14, Paul talks about the spiritual gifts that God has given us through the Holy Spirit. He talks about love, love being the supreme Uh, goal of everything, love that puts everything in the right perspective. And he talks about order. Paul's vision for the Spirit-led church is one that has order, though not necessarily outrageous control. It has order, but it also has room for spontaneity and creativity. Some churches let go of order completely, And go out of control. Maybe you've been in meetings. There's too much focus on the manifestations. There's emotional manipulation going on. People of God are wounded. And Paul also says in this passage, he says, you know, such a disorderly pursuit of the spirit actually prevents unbelievers from getting to know God. So it could so be that in our in our selfish pursuit of spiritual gratification, we're estranging the very people that God died for. I don't want that. I know I know you don't want that. And I know some of us have been wounded by by these types of things, and I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry about that. And I know God is. Then again, there are some churches hold too firmly to order and we become controlling. There's no room anymore for creativity and the gifts of the Spirit. We decide, a few, a few select people decide what's holy and what's unholy. How many of you remember worship leaders when we were told which rhythms were of God and which rhythms were of Satan? Hmm? Which instruments were holy to use in church and which ones weren't? I think we better back up. We can become too controlling. In our pursuit of doctrinal purity, we can squeeze the life and vibrancy out of our churches, and we can estrange more intuitive, spiritual people. The church can stagnate, and instead of leaving, With joy and lightness in your heart, you leave the Sunday with a heavy head. I think Paul the Apostle's vision is that we need order, but we also need room for the Spirit. So we need to maybe repent of areas. Maybe this speaks to you, where we've estranged people from God. Through a selfish pursuit of the gifts and manifestations. But maybe we also need to repent, church, of trying to control the Spirit. The very thing that makes church worthwhile and edgy and beautiful and spontaneous and a little crazy, is there room for a surprise in our meetings, in our life groups, in our families? Is there room for a surprise of the Spirit? I'm going to conclude with this thought. Let us crossroads, welcome silence and reflection in our meetings while also engaging wholeheartedly in joy and joyful exclamation and praise. And sometimes look a little bit silly for God. Amen. Amen, Ryan. Let us welcome biblical study and theology while also acknowledging the mystery and incomprehensibility of God. Let us be formed silently, gently, and gradually through spiritual disciplines while also being enraptured with a powerful and beautiful display of the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to post some material for the life group leaders and how you can make room for the Spirit. Right now, I just want to go into a little time of prayer to welcome the Holy Spirit. I want to pray for those of you who have been wounded by disorderly service. I want to pray for those of us who maybe don't even know the Spirit yet, and we want to be filled with God. And I'm going to pray for those of us who maybe out of fear or hurt, have tried to control the Spirit. Shall we pray? Let's stand up. Why don't we, why don't we stand up? Holy Spirit, Lord of life, water of life, We welcome you. Dear and gentle presence of God, who descended on Christ like a dove, I pray, descend on us today. For those who do not know you but want to know you, I pray, fill our hearts, come dwell in us and take up residence within us. Change our lives anew and make us a new creation in Christ. those of us who have been wounded, tend our wounds, dear spirit. Heal us deeply from human works and efforts and lead us into the gentle and green slopes of the kingdom of God where there's freedom for the children of God to be who they're created to be and pursue you in hot pursuit. I pray, Jesus, for creativity of the Spirit in our midst, that we would be a people that are comfortable with being dependent, that we would not minister out of the flesh, but out of the Spirit, that we would be amazed and surprised this year at the wondrous things that you're going to do in our midst. Lord, we worship you. Holy Spirit, we worship you with the Father and the Son. We worship you. We love you. And we welcome you in our church today. In Jesus' name.